Hi, yes, my roommate is missing. The last time I saw her was uh, before I left to spend the night with my friend out of state. When I came back, I couldn't find her anywhere. No one had seen her since the previous night, or maybe two nights ago, and her bed hadn't been slept in. I'm not sure if you've gotten other reports about her and... No. No, she didn't just go on vacation. She's my roommate, and she told me she was staying here this weekend. Plus, her other friends saw her. Yes, I know some people take off with friends on holiday weekends, and I know the weather has been nice, but if you would just listen to me, I told you that I have asked all of her friends. Okay, but if she randomly met people and left with them without a trace to go on some kind of completely unplanned trip, she would need money, wouldn't she? All of her money and identification is in a wallet on her bed. You think she would be okay out in the world with absolutely nothing? Camping? No, she didn't just take to the woods to go camping. What the hell does that even mean? You're not listening to me. I think something happened to her. Listen, she was at a party, she got drunk, and I'm telling you, she never made it home. No one has seen her, no one knows where she is, all her stuff is here, and the last person she was seen with was a guy I know for a fact has harassed women before. You are the police. Find her. Oh, now you think she's sleeping it off somewhere. I know I shouldn't have said she was drunk. How long do you think she needs to sleep? It has been 24 hours. If she's still ill, she had alcohol poisoning, and then you also need to find her. All we can do is wait. That is most certainly not all you can do. Get out there, go find her. What if she's still alive but won't be for long? What if she's hurt or sick or someone has her locked up? I know her. This isn't good. Something is wrong. If something happened to her, and it can be traced back to any time after this very moment, this moment where you and I are speaking face to face, and I'm telling you that something is wrong, it's on your head. You ignored the situation, and therefore, you let it happen. And she won't be the only one. You need to listen to women, because we aren't disposable. And this could happen to any one of us at any time. I'm Holly. I'm Leslie. And we would be dead. have a case fresh out of the news this week. Mm. And obviously, it has made me very heated. Yes. Uh, ever since the news broke just a few short weeks ago that Paul and Ruben Flores had been arrested for the murder of Kristen Smart, the true crime community has been absolutely on fire talking about it. 
We know that a lot of you may be unfamiliar with this case. Leslie, you're unfamiliar with this case, right? So we thought that we would catch everyone up. If you have the time and want an amazing deep dive into this case, the deep dive that actually led authorities to the witness that provided evidence that made this whole arrest possible, as I mentioned before, go and listen to Chris Lambert's podcast, Your Own Backyard. I mean, listen to us first while you're here. Please, you know. Thank you. you we did have you first. <laughs> um, but also go listen to Chris. He did an astronomical amount of research, and it paints a very full picture of this case as a whole. And um, while you're over there on Apple Podcasts, getting your true crime fix, don't forget to leave us a five-star rating and or a friendly review. Mm. It really does help us out so much. Ratings and reviews are what move a podcast forward. And if you're thinking to yourself, well, I already left a five-star rating and or a friendly review. Mm. What else can I do? What else can they do? I want to help more. How? I know. First of all, that person is an angel. I love them. I love them too, very much. Second of all, you can become a patron. Just go head over and visit We Would Be Dead on Patreon. And for just a little monthly donation, you will receive access to our patrons-only monthly podcast, 30-Minute Horror Movies, extra mini-sodes, a discount in our merch store, an on-air toast dedicated just to you, and more. And if all that seems overwhelming, you can always simply share our content to your social media feed. Tell a friend. Tell all your friends. Tell your enemies. If you know they're afraid of murder, like, maybe that'll be a, a good little punishment for them. hmm I don't know. Anything to spread the word helps us out. And if you tell your friends, then they can become fiends, and we can all hang out together. Yes. And if your enemies come, we'll make fun of them. Yeah. <laughs> How about yeah. that? Yeah. Yeah, fuck those guys. Yeah. I don't want your enemies. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I'll take be, them for ratings. Yeah, it's good to be close to your enemy. Right? You're right. You got to keep them close. Keep them closer. Yeah. Yeah. I like how you're thinking. Mm-hmm. And plus, like, if they don't like murder and stuff, I talk about the Olsen twins sometimes. Yeah. That's nice. Probably this time. Probably. <laughs> <laughs> we'll see. Okay, maybe. <laughs> I won't get anyone too excited. <laughs> also, tickets for our live show on June 19th at Tyndall Road Brewery in Bordentown will be going up very soon, and they are going to be extremely limited. So if you guys want to come see us live and in person, which you should because it's going to be really fun, then you need to get your tickets like the second they go up. Mm -hmm. So um, more on that soon. I'm hoping to get that up in the next like week or two. Okay. Great. So we like. so excited. I'm really excited too. And if we know ahead of time and there's like enough of a demand, we can probably do two seatings. So that's another reason why we're going to have to like kind of get an idea early of how many people want to come. Okay. Great. Leslie? Do you have anything to add? No. Not this week. <laughs> that was the saddest. <laughs> no. I have nothing. Not a thing. Not a thing. Nothing. Mm. All right, then. Yeah. On with the show. <laughs> On Friday, May 24th, 1996, Students at California Polytechnic State University in San Luis Obispo, locally known as Cal Poly, and that's how we're going to refer to it from here on out because the other name is long. So long. Mm-hmm. The students were all buzzing about that Friday night's parties, like college people do. Yes. <laughs> people were figuring out who would be where, who had to get booze, how people were getting places. That's like all your average Friday college night organizational stuff. 
Several parties were going on that night, but it was supposed to be kind of a slow weekend because this was Memorial Day weekend, and a lot of students were going home. The biggest party that was being talked about was a birthday party off campus on Fraternity Row. The night came and went. Kids got drunk. People woke up with headaches. There was mess to clean up. Just a regular three-day weekend until rumors began to circulate that a freshman named Kristen Smart had gone missing. Little did they know that this rumor, this event, this weekend, would be the beginning of a 24-year search for Kristen and her killer, and a billboard that would catch the curious mind of enough concerned citizens to one day, hopefully, find justice. This is a story of shoddy police work, of people and events slipping through cracks wide enough to drive a bus through, and of real people ignoring the overwhelming sentiment that sometimes girls go missing. And we just have to move on. Because for a very long time, that is how young women who disappeared were talked about. Yeah. We saw this with Ted Bundy. Mm-hmm. Every single one of those women, they said, oh, they just went away. Yeah, we love to just go away without telling anybody. It's great. We don't do that. <laughs> no. Who? Who? Where are you getting your information? Women don't do this. But thankfully, the women the, and... A lot of it was women and some was men that knew Kristen didn't buy this at all. And so we're going to talk about her first. Kristen Denise Smart was born on February 20th, 1977 in Augsburg, Bavaria, West Germany. Mm. Her parents, Stan and Denise, were American citizens but had relocated to Germany when a career opportunity for Stan and Denise came along. They would be living on a U.S. military base in Germany and teaching the children mm-hmm. of the United States soldiers. So they lived on this, like, U.S. military island in Germany, and they were teachers. The couple had struggled to conceive a child, and at this point they were thinking they might actually adopt while they were in Germany and bring a child home with them when they returned to the United States. But, miracle of miracles, before they decided to begin the paperwork to go through this, Denise found out she was pregnant with Kristen. The couple were overjoyed, and after a two-day labor, Kristen came into the world. Shortly after, the new family of three would decide to come back stateside and be closer to their family because they just had a baby. That's so nice. But, Leslie, why don't you give us a little peek into 1977 to help us really kind of flesh out Kristen's beginning? Sure. So, Elvis Presley died. Oh, no. (laughs) (laughs) Boy, we started that off with a bang. We did. Uh, Governor Arnold Schwarzenegger presented his movie Pumping Iron, which was the documentary that started his fame. Really like governor thing to do. Yeah, for sure. Super governmenty. Mm-hmm. Star Wars was released on June seventh, nineteen seventy seven. Very big deal. Mm-hmm. Uh, some of the songs that were popular then were "Tonight's the Night," "Gonna Be All Right" by Rod Stewart. Yeah. I just want to be your everything by Andy Gibbs. Oh, don't we all? <laughs> Best of my life, the emotions. Oh. Evergreen which was the love theme from A Star is Born by Barbara Streisand. So not that, like, Lady Gaga song. Not that one, no. Dancing Queen. Oh, so fun. Margaritaville, Jimmy Buffett. What a time these songs are. They're so (laughs) good. This is like a Friday night in Cape May. I know. That's what I was thinking. I was like, wow, these are still going strong. This is every cover band I've ever heard. Uh Okay. (laughs) Um, So the other movies that were really popular then were obviously Star Wars. They made, like, the... Number one, like, four times that year. They oh, kept yeah. coming back. Uh, King Kong and Rocky. Okay. 
And let's see. So since she's from Germany, I picked up some facts about what was going on during those times. Awesome. So in 1977 in East Germany, there was a coffee crisis. Oh, no. Yeah. I would have to move. Well, so there was a shortage of coffee in the late 1970s, which was caused by a poor harvest and unstable commodity prices, severely limiting the government's ability to buy coffee on the world markets. As a consequence, the East German government increased its exchangement in third, like in third world countries, such as Asia and Africa. Mm-hmm. So they would export weapons to them in exchange for the coffee. For coffee? Yeah. Oh, man, they got serious. Yes. I don't know. I don't think that's good. No. <laughs> so that was like one reason that some of those countries ended up with and all of those guns. And newborn. I know. There was no coffee there and was weapons no coffee. everywhere. And they were, um, so the coffee that was being served was like 50% coffee and something else. It was like 51% coffee 49% something else so is what people were drinking it? for a while, yeah, because of the shortage. Wow. Mm-hmm. Right? Crazy. And then I found an urban legend. I love an urban legend. In Augsburg. Oh, wow. Yeah. So, um, and I apologize, this is, I forgot to look up how this is pronounced, but I think it's Steinerner, Steinerner, Ma, is what I'm going to say. <laughs> it stands for Stone Man. <laughs> Oh. And it's a statue hidden along the city walls of Augsburg. The statue is believed to be a representation of the baker Conrad Hacker. The story goes... Ooh, what did he do? In 1635, Augsburg was in the middle of the Thirty-Year War that started back in 1618. The Thirty-Year War was about the Catholics hating the Protestants and the Protestants rolling their eyes at the Catholics. Mm. So a fight broke out all around Europe. And in 1626, the Catholics took over dominance in Augsburg. But then in 1932, the Protestants took it back. And then shortly after, the Catholics then took it back. And so now they were, um, the Catholics now had control and they were trying to starve out the Protestants. Oh, no. So there was like a famine happening there. And so according to local legend, on March 22nd, 1635, the baker Conrad Hacker scraped together his last flour and bulked it up with some sawdust from, like, all the fighting that's been going on and bombing and stuff. And he baked a large loaf of bread. He climbed the city wall and showed his loaf to the besiegers as a sign of allegedly, like, we have a ton of— we have a lot of food. Like, we have breads Look and stuff. Look at this one bread. Look at this. Like, you didn't starve us out. We're baking and shit. <laughs> yeah. And I'm going to throw it at you. That's how much I don't care. It's a bold gesture. Yeah. So he threw it. Conrad was then shot. So they're, like, on this other oh, no. side of the wall, and they all have weapons. And they're like, there's bread being thrown. Shoot that guy. Yeah. So he got shot, and he lost his right arm. He ultimately died as a result of complications from the injury. And didn't get to see that his tactics were successful. Oh! So the imperial troops lost faith in being able to starve the Augsburg Augsburgers um, <laughs> and withdrew. <laughs> Augsburgers! Yeah. I like that. Um, and as a reminder of the courageous rescuer, the grateful residents collected money to build a sculpture showing the one-armed man in baker's clothes with a bread in his left hand. So there's, like, you can see it on the city walls, like, yeah. this just statue of this man. This one-armed yeah. guy with some bread. Yeah. So over the years, uh, his nose fell off, and they replaced it with this, like, iron nose. So it's also weird because the statue, 
is kind of, it's a couple different colors, but they're all kind of light. They're oh, almost no. like brickish colors. Mm-hmm. But then the nose is kind of just black and iron looking. It's really weird. But apparently it's lucky to rub the nose. And it's something that a lot of couples do together. They like rub the nose to bring luck. So what it's a like weird a thing. thing. It is. And He's then like I did find. nose. It, 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 yeah. <laughs> it's weird. We'll, we'll put up a picture. But um, it was found out at, during more research on it that. It's not really a true story. That's terrible. I know. I know. There was Conrad the baker. That that was a guy. Okay. Um, and he may have done something like this, but the statues are actually, that wasn't just a statue made of him. It looks like it's pieces of different statues put together. And when you see it, you can tell it looks like they were, because they all look different colors and it's weird. But it, but it just is a fun little. And urban everybody legend in the town was like, "Yes, that guy." Yeah, <laughs> and they've kept it, and they've even had to move it from location to like two oh, different no. locations, and people like go and rub its nose, and it's probably something that they did. I love it. Yeah, go pet his nose. Go pet his nose, and you'll have some luck. You might. This, yeah, maybe the smarts did. Yeah, they had a baby. They did. Maybe that's what that's they did. Good luck. Maybe we don't know. That was fun. Yeah, <laughs> that fun fun side story. <laughs> So after the Smarts returned home to the United States, they bought a house and settled down in Stockton, California. Now, Stockton is a rather large city with a population of over 200,000. In 2020, it was named the most diverse city in America. So there really is something for everyone there. The population is very spread out, you know, like ethnicity-wise. So yeah. There's I'm sorry, where was that? Stockton, California. Okay. The Smarts would go on to have two more children— a son named Matt, and a daughter named Lindsay. Kristen was very close to her younger siblings. She was always, like, making up fun games for them to play and setting up imaginative scenarios where she'd be like, the teacher, and they were in her little school. Oh, I love it. I know. (laughs) (laughs) Just see Violet, my daughter, doing that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. She loves to set stuff up. Kristen was always an adventurous girl with a love of travel that seemed to be ingrained from her overseas birth. And her parents loved this about her. They thought that it was good for her to want to go out and see what the entire world had to offer. Kristen loved family vacations and would help plan her parents, like, help her parents plan trips. No. And they went away a lot. They saw a lot of the United States. There's, like, videos of them um, in Alaska, and they went to, like, national parks, and they did, they did a lot. And she loved that. She loved to plan, like, what are we going to see? What are we going to do? How are we going to, you know, immerse ourselves somewhere else? Her father said that the globe was her playground. Her mother described her as having a zest for life, a sense of invincibility, and the ability to do whatever she put her mind to. Like she said, she walked early in life and talked early because she was just so, like, wanted to get out and do things. So the school districts in Stockton, for some reason, moved around several times when Kristen was growing up, which forced her to switch, like, school populations. So she'd Mm -hmm. be in one, and then she had, like, a whole separate group of friends. So, like, the rug got pulled out from her. I think she was in, like, third or fourth grade, which is a difficult time. Mm -hmm. And this kind of would be a difficult situation for most kids to adapt to, and that's why I'm commenting on it, because her mother said that she seemed like she was just able to do it. She was like, all right, all these new people, I have to make friends. Guess I'm gonna. She had a whole new set of friends, then she went back to her old friends, and it was all pretty seamless. Her mother said that while she may not have been, like, the leader of her group, she was always an active part in her group of friends and always seemed invested with, like, good people around her. Their house was always full of friends and laughter, and there was never a shortage of sleepovers, and they were always bringing extra guests on their many vacations and excursions. Like, fun fun family. I know. Man, it must be nice. I know. (laughs) 
<laughs> Kristen also loved to draw and was especially adept at all things involving architecture. She liked to map out homes down to the very last details. Other teens might have been like doodling cartoons on their notebooks, but Kristen was like, had graph paper and was drawing blueprints. Blueprints of a house is not like an easy thing to just draw. And apparently she was like very precise and very good at this. Um, she appreciated structure and design and had a natural talent. Hmm. Yeah, so like she's doing really good. As the years went by, Kristen grew into a kind, quiet, and studious girl with an infectious smile. She was tall. She was 6'1". Oh, wow. Tall, tall. She played basketball? I don't think so. Mm. She played, like, everything else. <laughs> volleyball? Yes, she did play volleyball. That's a very California thing. Yes. She's I a very volleyball. California girl. It yeah. is fun. I'm not a sporter, but yeah. I do like volleyball. <laughs> I can do that. And she was a beautiful girl with long, sun-bleached hair and dark eyes. Always very striking when she entered a room. So a, a six-foot-one beautiful oh, yeah. woman walking into a room is going to draw eyes. What it would be like to be that tall. Boy, I don't know. I just – it just feels – I just want somebody to stretch me a bit. Sometimes <laughs> when I'm on my roller skates, I'm like, ooh, what's it like up here? I know. <laughs> I think that when I step on a stool, I'm like, this is what other people see. <laughs> wow. <laughs> Well, she had that advantage over us. And as the oldest of three, she learned to be responsible early on. And because of that, she often babysat for all the other little kids in her neighborhood. It's like a natural role for her to be a caretaker. And apparently she was extremely dependable and reliable. And all the adults really liked, you know, having her mm. come in to babysit. Kristen was also a dedicated athlete. She played volleyball, yeah, yeah. soccer, and swam competitively. Okay. I feel like having long limbs is probably good oh, for, for that, Oh, for sure. Too. They're all tall. Yeah. And swimming was just part of Kristen's love of all things summer. I mean, she lived in California, so mm -hmm. that's pretty good. She loved to surf, water ski, and just spend time on the beach enjoying the sunshine. Summer was when Kristen would also really spread her wings and fly, taking full advantage of time off from school. And this kind of started when she was in high school. Obviously, you're not going to, like, go away for all the summers when you're a tiny child. Although maybe some of you did. Good for you. Way to travel. Kristen spent the summer after her sophomore year in high school in London, studying and staying with family friends. The following summer, she wanted to learn Spanish, so she entered a student exchange program in Venezuela. But it was her love of swimming that brought her to her dream destination, and this was a camp in Hawaii. Hmm. Now, she'd never been to Hawaii, but she researched this camp, and she found it, and it is, it is beautiful, called Camp Mokulaya. Mokulaya? I think is how you pronounce it. And this is on the North Shore of Oahu. Uh, it became her goal then, like, once she saw this place, she's like, I'm going to get hired to be a lifeguard there, and I'm going to go there for the summer, and I'm going <laughs> to do this. Which is like, I it blows my mind. I can't imagine being, like, 17 and be like, I'm going to do this. Right. Done. But that's who she was. So, and it's not hard to see why this was her goal. This is a residential, like, sleepaway camp mm -hmm. in the most beautiful scenery you've ever seen in your life. Right. So kids, course. yeah, they stay in these, like, beautiful bungalows on the beach in Hawaii, and they learn about, like, conservation, and they surf, and they, I don't know, do beach stuff all the time. And that's it. Sounds so good. It looks beautiful. I will put a link to this camp, and you guys can take a look at it, and then you'll totally understand why she was like, yep, that's me. I want to do that. The counselors get to live in paradise. They surf and spend their days on the beach. It was absolutely perfect for Kristen. So she applied, and even though she was too young to be hired at the time, they still offered her a job. Wow. Yeah, she was very convincing. I like it. Yeah. Kristen's friends at camp said she was relaxed, confident, and a free spirit. They say she was kind of like kind of a hippy-dippy, flower child, surfer girl type chick. 
She was a sweet friend who was always very supportive um, and loved to surf and take the kids out for shaved ice. Aw. A cute Hawaii thing to do, right? I know. When she got home from camp, Kristen doubled up her academics as a senior, taking classes also at a community college, and finished her high school requirements a semester early. She did go on to graduate with her class, but she, like, finished all her stuff early so that she could, like, take additional community college credits after that because she really wanted to be accepted to a better school. And okay. she saw that this would give her an advantage. And it did. Again, this is how motivated she was. Right. She was like, okay, I'm just going to do as much as possible so I can, like, get to that place in my life that I want to be in. Sounds like you. <laughs> a little bit. <laughs> So in June of 1995, Kristen formally graduated from Lincoln High School in Stockton, and she was accepted to UC Santa Barbara and enrolled for the fall. But during that summer, upon further reflection, she decided that she didn't really want to be that far away from her family and that she'd like to be somewhere a little closer. So she backed out of Santa Barbara and instead applied and was accepted to Cal Poly in San Luis Obispo, which is about three and a half hours from Stockton, whereas Santa Barbara is about five. Okay. So it's like a little closer. Kristen was set to study architecture there, and as a polytechnic school, Cal Poly is like a great place to yeah. do that. And that's like a pretty high-profile career. Yeah. She was setting herself up for a pretty successful life. However, architecture didn't seem to stay Kristen's passion very long once she was in college. Mm. I mean, a lot of people change their mind when they get to college. They're, they're like, mm, this is not how I see my life going. And she decided to change her major to communication because she wanted to be a reporter so she could travel the world. Makes sense. Yeah. And I, I thought when I read that, I was like, oh, well, yeah, she loves to travel and she loves experiences and she that makes perfect sense for her. Because of her late admission to Cal Poly, there was no room in the dorms when she started. Like, they were like, well, you can come here, but we don't have a room for you right now. You can be on the wait list to live here. But before that, you're going to have to find off-campus housing. Mm. So she did. She found an apartment, I think it was like about 20 minutes or so off campus, and she had a roommate, and I, I guess this was like less than ideal for her because the commute was not good, and she didn't have a driver's license, so I don't know how she yeah. was getting to and fro. Apparently, she was um, afraid of driving, hmm. and she never ended up, she didn't want to do it. She didn't want to drive for herself, so she didn't end up getting her own license. Interesting. Yeah, I mean, that's, that happens to some people. Driving is scary. yeah. If I don't have to drive, I will not, mostly because I get lost all the time. It's fun. <laughs> I mean, she's still young, though. Like, she's, she's, yeah, 18 she at this point. And I don't know what the rules were at that point. I mean, it was probably 16, but it could have been 17. Well, 17 so. years, so yeah. Yeah. You never know. So she spent her first semester in this apartment, like, trying to find her way to campus. And she lived with this girl who her mother describes as, like, nice. She's like, I thought she was nice enough, but I guess she was very sheltered and Kristen and her just— they didn't hit it off as well as she could have with somebody else. I'm sure they were fine, but, like, right. it wasn't the experience you, you see yourself getting into. Yeah, they didn't connect right away. Right, and, and she wasn't like, oh, I'm, I'm in the college experience. She's like, I'm in this apartment, and I have to slog all the way to school, and then I'm like, it, was, it yeah. wasn't fun. So over her winter break that freshman year, Kristen went to Hawaii to attend a reunion with her friends from camp. So that was fun. Mm -hmm. And then when she returned— she was offered a spot in a dorm room on campus. Great. Yeah, so it's everything's coming up roses. It was um, in room 120 in Muir Hall, which <laughs> is referred to as an historic residence for students. And this makes it sound like they're living in an old mansion with a library and a drawing room. 
but no, that is not what it is. It is the most generic dorm situation I have ever seen in my life. Close your eyes, picture a dorm room. Yeah. That's it. Yeah. You did it. (laughs) Well, that's what they used to call ours, too, like historic dorm rooms, just because they were there from the beginning. Exposed brick wall, two sets of loft beds, desk. That's It looks like every picture of a dorm you've ever seen. Yeah. But it was just there probably from the beginning. From the beginning, so it's historic. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. It looks like the least interesting dorms in my high school. I'm looking at you, masters. No good. (laughs) But Kristen was elated, and she jumped on this opportunity immediately. I'm not sure what happened to, like, her poor, boring roommate. (laughs) She found some. Yeah, she was like, whatever, it's fine. (laughs) But I guess that didn't, I wasn't working out anyway, so it didn't matter. like, hey, Marge, I'm moving out. I'm going to go now. And she's just like, all right, cool. I guess I'll find somebody else. Whatever. So now it is newly 1996, because over winter break, it would have, the year would have turned. And Kristen is living on campus, which makes her life a lot easier. It also put Kristen in a whole new environment with a new group of friends and new activities. It was as though college went from zero to 60 in a matter of days. So she went from this weird commuting lifestyle to like, you're in it. And that can be a little difficult to adjust to. But Kristen saw this as an opportunity to reinvent herself. I mean, I remember being 18 and 19 years old, and the opportunity to reinvent yourself is something that you don't take for granted. Right. When you, so many of us are like, well, when I leave high school and enter college, I'm going to be a different cool person. Yeah, I'm going to (laughs) be so cool. Yeah. (laughs) Everyone's going to love it. I'm going to have the best clothes. I'm going to be so, like, smart and funny. It's going to be great. I spent four years studying the cool girls and the funny guys. And you put them together. Yeah. Unstoppable. Yes. <laughs> Perfect. Yeah. How did it go? Not well. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was like, I'm not going to be weird at art school. No. <laughs> Everyone's going to be just like me. No, they're not. They still think you're weird. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Turns out that if I wanted like the weird art school kids, it was not musical theater they were involved in. <laughs> Oh, well, they were just popular kids who could sing. (laughs) (laughs) So anyway, why don't we take a little break from the story and let's let's have you set up 1996 for us now because we're we're rebranding ourselves. It's 1996. We're going to be cool girls and funny guys all in one. Okay. Um, And also, before we get into it, I did tell Leslie that um, Kristen loved music and her friends remember her making a lot of mixtapes with all Mm -hmm. her little favorite songs on them. And, like, back then, you had to use the dual tape decks or record off the radio. (laughs) It was not like you could just program your iPod. And she would play them on a cassette tape while they were, like, getting ready to go out for the night. I love it. There's probably, like, (laughs) start or end of commercial, too. You hear, like, the little, yeah, (laughs) yeah, absolutely. (laughs) Or you don't get the first second of the song. Yeah. like, what comes in the middle. We're dating ourselves, but I, I remember that so well. <laughs> yep. <laughs> so good. All right. So in 1996, I was nine years old. Good. Which means I was living a fairly different life from Kristen, though I had older siblings, so I think maybe our music and TV show taste might have been kind of similar, things I might have snuck and watched with them that my parents were like, I was like mm. 14 or 15, so. Um, but where I think we differed was my obsession with the Olsen twins. No, we don't know that. Maybe she loved them. She might have. But first off, this was the first time in my life that Full House was not airing new episodes. Heartbroken. Yes. 
I was beside myself. Oh, no. Reinvent yourself. Yeah. (laughs) But I had plenty of Mary-Kate and Ashley in my life. I was already deep into the adventures of Mary-Kate and Ashley Olsen musical mystery videos. When they all had 40-year-old boyfriends? No. This was when they were— Yeah. Okay. Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, then there were the adventure books, which uh, I was reading so much then at nine. <laughs> All of those adventure books. They had books? Yeah, they were probably, I feel like they were probably the same as their movie I is. Think but just you read them. No. Everyone read Kara them? Kara read them. Oh. Kara's here. She's listening. She read them. <laughs> Kara's here. She's here. <laughs> Uh, then there were their hit movies like Double Double, Toil and Trouble, and How the West Was Fun. Was it fun? It was so fun. That's great. They were so cute in their little denim jackets and their little cowgirl hats. Pew, pew, pew. Yeah, it was so good. <laughs> then there were uh, their, so in 1995, they came out with It Takes Two, which is one of my favorite movies to this day. Ugh, great. has Christy Alley in it. We don't like her anymore. Oh. Well, she but went, then she it went was rogue. Rogue. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> And then in 1996 is when they came out with You're Invited to Mary-Kate and Ashley, their, like, videos. And this is where um, they would have a sleepover video or you're invited to their birthday party. You found some of those pictures for my birthday. Oh, that's what they were? Me, yeah. I just looked up Mary-Kate and Ashley birthday. <laughs> yeah, some of those were from that movie. And uh, it was a way to, you can see what we thought was their actual day-to-day lives and you would meet some of their siblings sometimes and and then we would rent it so my friends and I would rent them rent the movies and watch them at sleepovers because then you could have a sleepover with Mary Kate and Ashley (laughs) (laughs) it was really fun I was nine okay yeah get over it (laughs) at nine that's great and at this point, the girls had already been running their own company, Dual Star, an entertainment company producing TV shows, movies, books, music, and other popular media. Their lives were just such an inspiration to me. <laughs> Guys, this is an Olsen Twins <laughs> podcast now. <laughs> this is just where I was at. At nine years old, I was like, I can run my own company. I mean, we're all feeling very inspired. And I could do murder mystery musicals. We still could do that. Yeah. This is my dream. You guys don't know. We don't know what is in the future for us. Here were my favorite TV shows. Okay. Alex Mack. Do you remember Oh, yeah. I remember Alex Mack. All that. That's back. Yes, it is. Are You Afraid of the Dark? That's also back. Rugrats. Also coming back. Ah, Real Monsters. Not coming back. Rocco's Modern Life. I think that came back. That Mm-mm. they had no, they did. They it came back on like Netflix. Old ones, they? not new ones. Oh. All the I it came backs that I just said. There's new episodes of. I thought that Rocco had a new episode, no? no? No. But Rugrats is coming back this year. Cool. Yeah. Ren and Stimpy. Problematic. <laughs> then on the other channels, you had Sabrina the Teenage Witch. That also started. Good. Sister, Sister. Love that mm-hmm. show. Moesha. Do you yes. remember? Yes. Loved Moesha. Spin City and Friends. So those were like the older ones. That's probably what Kristen was yeah, watching. Yeah, probably. <laughs> I don't think she was watching all these kid things. Yeah. Well, you never know. So then the fashion of 1996 was basically what you would see on Friends if Rachel wore it. Everyone else wore it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> if Rachel had a certain haircut, that was the haircut you had. Mm-hmm. And I pretty much live my life by that now, haircut-wise, always Jennifer Aniston. I mean, that's not a faulty <laughs> way to live through life. It's yeah. It's pretty good. Yeah. It's <laughs> like, always perfect. Um, so there was, like, short plaid ruffle skirts, a little belly tee, spaghetti strap tanks, oversized blouses, cargo pants, platform shoes, and heels. Stay away from Monica's fashion. Yes. Mm-mm. Not good. No. Gwen Stefani was like another fashion icon. She too. was my hero. I know, that's who. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> 
And then from what I remember of the 90s, it felt a little bit more of like like the 80s, just a little grungier. Yeah. Right? So Kristen made mixtapes. Yes, she did. I loved mixtapes. And what's kind of cool is that there were definitely songs from this era that I remember enjoying in 1996. Mm -hmm. But then when I was about Kristen's age is when I worked at FYE. And then I found this whole genre of music that I really liked. And it was the songs from 1996. Oh, And a lot of the bands from them. So on my mixtape album, it would probably be Spice Girls, Wannabe. Good. Mariah Carey, Always Be My Baby. Also good. Jewel, Who Will Save Your Soul. Deep. (laughs) The Macarena. (laughs) The Macarena? Show yourself You know out, I totally Leslie. would have done that in like at nine years old. I've been like, I can do a dance. It's going to be at your wedding. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Smashing Pumpkins, 1979. Good. Garbage, Stupid Girl. Do you remember Garbage? I loved Garbage. I love Garbage. Yeah. Uh, Weezer, El Scorcho. I still love Weezer. Uh-huh. No Doubt, Don't Speak. So Weezer and No Doubt was my first concert. Nice. Together. Wow, that's I a know. great concert. Yeah, it was amazing. Then there's No Doubt, Spider Webs. That was on my answering machine. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> would be, yeah. <laughs> you guys want to, like, sit there and scratch your head and be like, why does Holly always wear eyeliner and red lipstick? It's because Gwen Stefani did in 1996. That's true. So. And then there was Oasis, Don't Look Back in Anger. Mm. Eels, Novocaine for the Soul, which I liked. Yeah. And then just probably a bunch more Spice Girls is what I'd put on there. It's <laughs> a good mixtape. Yeah. I would still listen to that. So that was my 1996. Oh, there's so much Olsen twins. <laughs> but, uh. Kristen reinvented herself in 1996, so that was a good a good little dip into those waters. Kristen made some changes in her reinvention. She began testing out new nicknames, like she would sign emails from Kiana or um, what was the other one, Marisol, or um, some of the boys called her Roxy, and she called herself Roxy sometimes. And some people think it's because she wore Roxy brand surf clothing. And other people think it's because um, a previous high school friend's name was Roxy and she just liked it. Mm. I think it's probably the clothes. I would think so. I think it's the clothing brand. Um, She dyed her normally sun-bleached blonde hair brown. Okay. So there's no photographs of Kristen with brown hair. Yeah. None. Because she did it so close to the time of her disappearance. And this is pre-cell phone. We're not walking around, or at least pre-smartphone. If you had a cell phone, it didn't take pictures. And everyone wasn't walking around with, like, automatic photograph evidence of their life. So any kind of photos would have been on, like, if she had a disposable camera or something. And if you look online for pictures of Kristen, every single one of her is blonde. It's hard to find her as a brunette. Kristen struggled to find her place at Cal Poly. Like most freshmen in college, it's a huge transition to suddenly be out in the world with all new people all on your own. But she made sure to make time to call her parents every Sunday night which I love. She'd go to a little payphone in her dorm and call her parents every Sunday night. Cute. Really sweet. And they wrote letters. And the smarts would come out to visit Kristen over her breaks. Kristen began to express to her parents that she thought maybe Cal Poly wasn't actually for her. She thought maybe she'd be better off at another school. Maybe she'd be better off going to school overseas. Or maybe she should just take time to travel. She wasn't really sure. Her mother wrote to her and told her that she should finish out the semester and slow down. Because not only was Kristen struggling with her grades at this point and trying desperately to find her people and her place in the student world, so to speak, but she was also working at the local pool as a lifeguard to earn money. Now, being the new lifeguard and the youngest there, she was always given the most undesirable shifts, 
which meant she needed to be the first on duty and she would have to get there first thing in the morning. And this forced her to wake up every day at around 4.30 a.m. And so she would always tell her mom that her grades would suffer because she was too tired to study and she couldn't go to bed early because she was too busy to go to sleep. And so it was an endless overworked cycle. If it seems like Kristen was a little lost in the sauce at this point in her life, that's because she was. And so many of us are at that point in time. I certainly was. I don't think I have ever been as lost as I was when I was in college. I had friends, but I always kind of felt alone. It's such a weird time in life. Yeah, it really is. And I was always confused. Yeah, same. And I think that's normal. Mm -hmm. It's a huge life transition. Kids are managing so many different like emotional needs and like turning points in their life at once that it's not surprising that it's confusing to a lot of them. And Kristen's parents, for their part, seemed to be really understanding of this. Mm -hmm. They knew that she was stretching herself too thin and just didn't really know how to place her priorities. But they had faith that by her sophomore year, things would kind of shake out and she would, like, be able to focus and have a clearer path. Mm -hmm. In May of 1996, Kristen's mother would write her a letter telling her that the world was full of opportunities and that she had nothing but time. I hate that. Denise would encourage her daughter to stay the course at Cal Poly and then move forward after getting her degree. But this would be the last letter Denise ever wrote to her. Oh. <sighs> That's like a bullet. So now we have arrived on Memorial Day weekend of 1996. A three-day weekend, which is just before the end of school. And also kind of surprising to me because most colleges now get out before Memorial Day weekend. You think of like college. They're done in like mid-May. Right. But uh, she wasn't, so. Oh, yeah, that's that's interesting. But Kristen had decided to stay at school for Memorial Day weekend, too. Like, a lot of kids went home because you had the extra time. But she she didn't want to. I think she might have been working, too. But her roommate, Crystal, was leaving for just Friday. So she was like, you're going to be alone on Friday. I'll be back on Saturday. Kristen has the room to herself on Friday night. And this is important. Because a lot of reports will tell you that Crystal went away for the whole weekend. And then nobody noticed Kristen was missing because she was gone the whole time. But she wasn't. She came back on Saturday. On Friday, May 24th, Kristen called her parents in the afternoon and left them a message on their answering machine because it's 1996, telling them that she had good news. She was really excited and that she would call them back on Sunday and let them know. Her parents would later discover that the good news she was referring to was in reference to a class she was taking. As I mentioned before, Kristen had been struggling with her academics. She was having a hard time in her science class because her teacher had lost her final exam. Oh. I know, which I hate. And so instead of, like, giving her her grade, she had given Kristen an incomplete in the class. So she was really upset about that, and I would be too. But as it turned out, with pressing and perseverance, the teacher had looked and found the test, and her exam grade had been good, and so she was going to get a much better grade in the class. So she was really excited to tell her parents. Great. Right? So that night, as I mentioned, was the beginning of Memorial Day weekend, so obviously people wanted to go out and party. You have two other days off. You're going to go do stuff. And Kristen was no exception. She and her friend Margarita, who lived in the dorm room right next door to Kristen, had decided that they were going to go out looking for a party together. Kristen really, really wanted to go out that night. She was like, I just need to blow off steam. I really want to go to a party. I really just feel the need to be social and go out. And Margarita was like, I have to study for a final and I don't want to. (laughs) 
And Kristen, like, was able to convince her because the two had become pretty close friends and spent a lot of their time together. Both the girls, as it turns out, had ADD and therefore struggled with, obviously, their school balance and with focus. And they were able to really relate to one another on a different level that some other people couldn't. So she finally convinced Margarita. She's like, we got to go out. It's going to be fun. She's like, ah, right. (laughs) Kristen put on a gray crop top, black shorts, and red Puma sneakers. Peak fashion. Yep. Good job, girl. Um, And her black shorts were like black board shorts. Okay. Makes sense. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Kristen left her money and ID behind in her room because she didn't think she would need them. And she had lost her key to her building. So she was just going to rely on Margarita, who lived right next door, to let them both back in at the end of the night. I guess that she didn't lock the door to her room. I guess it, like, was common for them to leave their room doors open. Now, some people find this unusual, but I don't see it that way at all because it sounds pretty on par for a 19-year-old girl. And side note, I am also an adult who had ADD, and I would 100% leave all my money and ID in an unlocked room and then go out for the night without a key to my building. (laughs) Yeah, because the dorm rooms are usually monitored, too. Yeah, well, there There's, was a door person there. That's what, yeah, so generally the people in your dorm is who you know, mm-hmm. and it's really not that weird. And if people were, like, gone for the weekend. Yeah, it was not, know? it was, like, half empty, or more, people were saying. Yeah, it also a lot. Like, <laughs> you have ADD, you're impulsive, and you have no foresight, and, or, and bad short-term memory, and it's never not an adventure. <laughs> right. <laughs> I can testify to this. I will get out in the world and be like, I like my keys in my car and I have no money. Like, that's still my life. So <laughs> I relate to her on this level. I'm like, girl, I get you. I understand. You just needed to go have a party. And you looked really cute. And that's how life was going. Right. It's fine. So on their way out of the building, Kristen and Margarita ran into two classmates at, um, that also lived in Weir Hall. And they were looking to party too. So the four of them decided that they would all kind of like be a team and go together. Um, and when they got outside, they flagged down some guy they knew in a truck. They, like, saw their friend in the truck. They're like, hey, come get us. And he was like, all right. Mm-hmm. And they asked him to just drive them around off campus to look for a party. Cool. This is not cell phone time, so they weren't all calling each other. You just had to look for each other back then. Right. So unless there was some rumor, like, big party at Kappa Pi. Yeah, which there was <laughs> a little bit of that, which we'll yeah. get to in a second. But she was like, I know there's something out on, like, the like possibly in the frat area. And, like, off mm-hmm. campus, there's got to be some parties happening tonight. Let's just, like, go walk around and see if we can find yeah. a place that's obviously a party. The cross guys are always raging. There you go. <laughs> Let's find them. So the guy in the truck drove them around. And first he took them to a house off campus that just turned out to be, like, a handful of guys playing video games. Yeah, I've walked into one of those before. Been like, <laughs> You're like, huh? Oh, yeah, okay. you just sneak out. <laughs> yep. And um, the guys gave them a beer, so they were like, cool, a beer. Mm-hmm. That's great. <laughs> and Kristen's friend said that she referred to this as like a dud. She was yeah. like, no, this is failure. This is a dud. I would have wanted to stay. I know. Maybe like, this, this is my speed. Maybe they were fun guys. They had beer. They had video games. It's fine. Yeah. Hang out with them. Yeah. Stay with them. Those guys are good. Um. But they didn't really want to, so they just, I guess this truck guy is just, like, a faithful servant. So, like, we got to move on. Yeah, Yeah. it's like two cute girls. They're just going to go. He was like, all right, let's keep going. And so, as I mentioned, a lot of people had gone home for the long holiday, so it was hard to find a place where people were just, like, so many people were hanging out that you could tell it was a party. Eventually, Kristen was like, just drop us off out at this off-campus area, and we're going to walk around. 
none of this is far, by the way. They're not even a mile from their dorm. It's, right. it's very close. So the guy in the truck drops them off, and Kristen and Margarita walk around together near Frat House Row, where they were pretty sure they'd find a party. Yeah. But it seemed kind of dead. And Margarita got frustrated and tired. She knew she had an exam. She said she had to pee, and she wanted to go back to her room. But Kristen wasn't having this, and she really, really, really wanted to find a party that night. So they argued about it for a little while before agreeing to part ways, which I hate. Margarita gave Kristen her key because she knew at this point in time the dorm's front door wouldn't be locked yet. So she's like, I'm going to go back now. It's still open. You take my key and just come back in when you're done for the night. And she left, leaving Kristen to find a party by herself. Mm Mm-hmm. Oh, this always makes me so uneasy. And, again, no way to call anybody. She's not calling people at this party and saying, hey, come meet me outside. She's not saying, like, I can't get home. Like, there's no way to tell whether she's safe or not. We're just trusting. So 19-year-old girl on her own. You guys, like, never, 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 never do this. (laughs) Right. I place no blame on Margarita. She thought the situation was perfectly safe and that Kristen would make it home with no problem. And Margarita lives with, like, soul-crushing guilt to this day because she left her. But this is not a situation that anybody should be confident in. So if you're listening to this and you're like a freshman in college, you need to stay with a buddy. Yeah. Never go off on your own. But back to Kristen, who was determined to find a party. She walked up Foothill Boulevard towards Crandall Way, and a little after 10 p.m., she found the party she was looking for. The Kappa Chi fraternity at 135 Crandall Way was having a party for a senior named Ryan Swampy Fell. Ooh. Not 100% sure what kind of guy earns the nickname Swampy, but I can hazard a guess that it might not be the most hygienic of fellas. <laughs> I was also really close to where the party was at. What? Because I said Kappa Pi. Oh, you were so. very close. <laughs> Did you know? But this party is a lot of times made out to be like a huge rager, and it wasn't. It was mostly just fraternity brothers and, like, one or two guests with them. I think they said when Kristen arrived, there was, like, 20 people there. And at the height of the party, there was maybe 30 to 40. Which, for, like, a college fraternity party, does not seem that big to me. No. And, again, everybody was home for the weekend. Mm -hmm. Because of this, because the party was contained to mostly fraternity brothers, nearly no one has spoken out about what happened at this party. Mm. There's a very, I mean, that's a brotherhood, and no one's going to say anything. I can't say what happened to Kristen while she was there, and really not many people can. But I can say that GHB was found in those fraternities on more than one occasion. That's a date rate drug. And one fraternity even lost their charter because of a GHB-related death. So it's certainly not out of the question to assume that Kristen may have had something slipped into her drink while she was there. Only one attendee from this party has ever spoken out publicly, a man named Trevor Belter, who gave his account to two other podcasts, so I feel comfortable using it as a reference. He referred to the party as taking place in a, quote, jam band house. Yeah. He said, quote, a lot of fish would have been playing. A lot of fish, a lot of Grateful Dead. Oof. Which, okay, I get it. You were all low-key high to baked out of your brains at any given point. Right. That's not a code we can't crack. Sorry. <laughs> and that night, Kristen had taken it to introducing herself to people as Roxy. Okay. So that was her persona of the evening. And she approached this guy, Trevor, and said hello, and then immediately went in and kissed him. And then she pulled him into the bathroom. 
where she just started talking to him about the night. She was like, who do you think I should hook up with? I have the crush on this basketball player here. And this guy's like, I think you should probably hook up with me. That'd be great. And yeah. she was like, no. <laughs> <laughs> Apparently, she, like, kissed him and drug him into the bathroom to make this guy jealous. Okay. Pretty, that's a baller move. <laughs> she wanted to go out tonight. Yeah, she was ready to party. <laughs> yes. I know. <laughs> So after a few minutes of chatting with poor Trevor in the bathroom, she's like, you can go now. <laughs> yeah. She's like, I actually have to go to the bathroom. Can you leave? He was like, okay. okay. <laughs> so then he leaves. And he makes mention of the fact that all of the guys at this frat party were referring to her as vinyl shorts. Okay. They're like, vinyl shorts girl, vinyl shorts chick. Because at six foot one, she was an impressive presence. And apparently her legs and board shorts were like all they could see. Yeah. Early reports of this case really only focus on how Kristen was dressed and how she behaved at this party, Mm. completely ignoring anyone else who could have been there or how inappropriately they might have been behaving towards her because we only focus on the woman and how she was asking for it. Right. Which I hate. By the end of the night, Kristen approached Trevor one more time and tells him that the guy she was after had rejected her and she was sad about it. So she tries to kiss him again, except for she's, like, extremely sloppy drunk at this point. Like, she's not comporting herself well. She's, like, Mm. kind of falling over and slurring her words and stuff. So, okay, here's the thing. Maybe this happened. Maybe it didn't. This is what this guy says in interviews. I have no reason to disbelieve him. I'm not sure what the situation was. Like, he could remember this a certain way, but it could have existed a different way, too. Mm -hmm. Everybody sees a situation differently. But what he does admit to was Kristen's extreme state of intoxication. So that's something that's important we need to remember. Also, like, listen, we have all had this phase where we thought that maybe being, like, a little over-sexually confident was what boys wanted. Mm-hmm. It's a hat a lot of girls try on because, honestly, they just want someone to like them. And in the movies, the girl who is confident enough to wear the tiny shorts and go right up to a guy and plant one on him is like a magical goddess that every man she meets, is. she has them right under her spell. But in real life... That woman has to have skin a mile thick because everyone who lays eyes on her will go home whispering unflattering things about her character. Mm-hmm. Confidence is great, but when you're 19, is extremely hard to come by, honestly. Right. And I think that's what that night was for her. She's like, I'm going to be this person tonight. And this person is beautiful and confident and gets exactly what she wants. Right. And that doesn't happen until like mid-30s. <laughs> Yes, that is very true. (laughs) Um, When you're 19 and you're doing that and you're not even doing it that confidently, you're just trying it. As soon as you hear people whispering, it's bad. Yeah. It's very bad. Mm. So between 1.30 and 2 a.m. that night, a group of students leaving this party caught sight of Kristen, passed out on the neighbor's house's, like, front lawn. So the next house right next to it, she was, like, asleep, they thought, on the front lawn. And that's not good. No. You shouldn't be asleep on a lawn, even in, like, the drunkest and craziest of parties. I don't know that many people slept outside on a a lawn. That's only happened to one of my girlfriends in college, and she was drugged. What I'm going to go on to We had to find her outside of the party somewhere. horrible. Yeah. And that is exactly, I mean, I'm going to get into it in a second, but, like, that's what I think is happening here. So two members of this group named Cheryl Anderson and Tim Davis went over to Kristen, having seen her laying there, and they wake her up, or they at least, like, rouse her, and they tell her she has to go home. But Kristen couldn't stand on her own or speak. 
She couldn't like form sentences. She couldn't barely keep her eyes open and she couldn't walk. Hmm. I've seen people really drunk. I'm almost 40. I've seen most phases of drunk, as have you. And it's, you worked in a bar, you know. Mm-hmm. And it's definitely possible to achieve this state with just the use of alcohol and maybe a little pot from the jam band boys. But that level of intoxication, to me, smacks of date rape drugs. Yeah, and I mean, it is hard to tell because we don't know how much she actually drank that night and what the period of time was. But it's also hard for me to believe that it would be that much when she was kind of there alone. She was there alone. So, but I don't know. I mean, who knows if she drank before she went out. The pre-gaming can be. She had one beer before she got there. Okay, we do know her her night. She had one beer at those weird guys' house before she got there. Weird guys who we and probably would have liked. would have said if they had drinks at the... Absolutely, she would have. Yeah. And then Kristen got to this party by herself a little after 10 o'clock, and they found her passed out on the neighbor's front lawn between 1.30 and 2 o'clock. So she was there okay. for a long time. Definitely enough time to get very drunk. Right. But I just... The inability to, like, move and stand and stuff, being by yourself, I it doesn't seem right to me. Mm-hmm. Especially without being sick. Yeah. Because there are no reports of her, like, vomiting or anything. Oh, yeah. So that's interesting. If you're so drunk that you cannot, like, see or talk or stand, you're going to throw up. Mm-hmm. Or at least I would. I mean, right. I've never been that drunk, but still. I don't know. I just, to me, it feels like more than alcohol intoxication. Mm-hmm. I, I don't have any scientific results, but I would stake my claim on that because girls that can't keep their eyes open also or can't speak should probably receive medical attention yeah if you are that drunk which i have only seen someone once and i took them to the hospital you could have alcohol poisoning and here's the thing if if this is your friend that you're or just a person you're seeing in this state which would you regret more taking someone who turned out to be fine the next morning to the hospital or never seeing them again and finding out years later that they were like drugged and murdered Yeah. Always err on the side of caution. Yeah. So I think we can all agree it's that first one. So Tim and Cheryl decide that they need to walk Kristen back to her dorm. I guess somehow they got out of her where she lived or they knew her from somewhere. And on their way back to campus, they encounter another student named Paul Flores. This is our bad guy. He approaches the trio, noticing that Kristen is, like, really struggling. He offers to help them get her back to her dorm safely and immediately, like, is touching her right away. He's, like, got his arms around her bare midriff, and he's, like, holding her up and, like, pressing her against him for, like, support. Yeah. I hate him. I know Leslie's oh. making a face, and he deserves that face. So it's not a long walk, maybe 10 minutes from Fraternity Row to the dorms, and the first person, like, Tim Davis is the first person to peel off of this group. So they don't walk, they don't all walk her back. They're like, well, I'm on my way next. I hate so he's this. like, my car, I hate it too so much. He's like, oh, my car is here. Good night, guys. So the one other guy they have with them immediately gets in his car and goes. Then they come to a fork in a road where Cheryl's dorm is one way and Kristen's is the other. Mm-hmm. And she says, Oh, I got to go back to my dorm. So, Paul, can you make sure that Kristen gets home safely? So he says yes, says good night, and Cheryl walks to her dorm, and Paul walks Kristen home. 
never leave a guy with a, never leave a girl with a strange man, you guys. Never, ever, never, ever, never, ever, ever. This makes me so mad. It's hard to get through the rest of this part because it gets worse. But I try very hard to give every student in this story the benefit of the doubt, but this moment is so hard for me to swallow. And as soon as I finish up this bit of the timeline, I will make it crystal clear to you as to why you should hate it even more than you do right now as well. Paul reports after the fact that he and Kristen um, actually split off. They got to the point where her dorm was 40 yards away and his dorm was 40 yards in the other direction, and he watched her walk away to her dorm, and then he walked to his dorm alone. An action that several other students have already said Kristen wouldn't have been physically able to do at this point in time. So that's not what happened. Right. So let's talk about Paul. I'm going to open this up with the fact that at Cal Poly, he was known more commonly as Chester the Molester. Ugh. That's what people called him. And behind his, behind his back, obviously. And in high school, he was either known as Psycho Paul or Scary Paul. Ew. Mm-hmm. And he had a nice long history of being absolutely horrible to women. And another thing, he was at the same party as Kristen was that night. And not only was he there, but he was seen by several people talking to her and attempting to hit on her. At one point, another party goer reported hearing a loud bang and seeing that he had fallen, like arranged himself to fall on top of her. Oh, I hate it. Mm-hmm. And this is probably just an attempt to be on her, obviously. Of course. Trevor Belter also remembers Paul accosting him after he exited the bathroom with Kristen, demanding that he tell him what the two had been doing in there together. Paul is not just a, conter- a concerned good Samaritan. So to recap, one woman sent another woman who was so drunk she couldn't stand or form words off alone with a man commonly known as Chester the Molester. And it's not as if Cheryl didn't know about his reputation because Paul had tried to force himself on her roommate just months prior to this night. And she thought he was creepy and untrustworthy. Oh, Cheryl. Never take the extra five minutes. Or... Take her back to your dorm. To your dorm! That's what I would have done because I wouldn't have wanted to walk back by Mm -hmm. myself. Yeah, like we'll all go and then I can be assured that I will get in there without this creepy guy. Or is there campus police? Like call them. Or get in the guy Tim's car and have him drive you. He got in a car. What the fuck? But wait, there's more. Before Cheryl split off from the group, Paul, with his arms around Kristen, holding her up against his body, asked Cheryl repeatedly to kiss him goodnight. Ew. Which she denied. And then he tried to just downgrade to like, maybe give me a hug or a handshake, all while holding onto limp Kristen's body. And she still walked away. This isn't a good situation no matter how you look at it. Paul tried to kiss so many unwilling women, in fact, that it's shocking that he could possibly have gone unpunched in the face for so long. There are reports all over campus that surfaced after Kristen's went missing that Paul had accosted these women as well. At parties, at their doors at night, like he he was a fucking well-known creep. Paul Flores is a mess. I wish I could be delicate about it, but I can't. He was a creepy guy who was seemingly a little weird because maybe he was a little intellectually behind his peers. And here's what happened. Paul swam in a school of very, very nice, middle-class young people who thought it was rude to be, and to judge him for being weird. Mm. They thought he was weird, but probably harmless. So they wanted to give him the benefit of the doubt and not like, not be mean to him. Right. There is a line. This is what is known as a perfect storm. Is every weird guy a murderer? No, of course not. 
But should you trust a guy with a history of getting handsy and trying to force himself on women? Also, no. Were these just rumors about Paul? No, there are receipts. Paul was taken in by the Cal Poly campus police on more than one occasion the previous year for, like, stalking behavior. Once he he climbed a trellis outside a girl's window and was, like, peeking into the window to watch the girls, like, change and stuff. Ew. Kick him out. Uh Uh-huh. And later he was reported yet again by the same occupants of this room for calling their phone and filling their answering machine with just, like, empty messages. He just harassed them over the phone. In high school, back when he was just scary, Paul, before he was Chester the Molester, he was known for doing fun things like following girls home from work just to see where they lived. Oh, God. He had a few friends. Oh, he had few friends, I'm sorry. And a pronounced stutter. Um, So people were, like, felt sorry for him. That's another part. They were like, oh, he's just a guy that, like, has a little problem, so we have to be nice to him. Because he has a stutter doesn't mean he has to be a stalker or a molester. His classmates in high school remember him looking glazed over and unfocused. He had almost translucently pale skin, glassy blue eyes, and bleach blonde hair. He basically looked like a ghost walking among people. Throughout high school, Paul would show up at parties even though he was never invited. They never really know how he got there. I mean, like, you have a big house party. Not everyone there got a gilded invitation. But they were always like, oh, I guess that guy's here being creepy to girls again. He would always, like, lurk on the edges of crowds trying to make his way into a group so that he might find the attention of a girl. Every single person in Paul's past has the exact same thing to say about him. Quote, when I heard he was suspected in the death of a missing girl, I wasn't surprised. There are countless reports of unsettling interactions with Paul that stretch from his adolescence until, spoiler alert, just before he was arrested a few weeks ago. So even after Kristen's disappearance, there are tons of reports of him doing real, real creepy things to women. I hate that all these people felt more guilty being rude to him than they did to protect Kristen. Yep. I hate that. Because I I've seen it so many times. So have it's I. Not, it's you don't, not abnormal to me. Nope. I mean, neither. I I've been see. in those situations. Mm-hmm. Where you're kind of intimidated and you're just yeah. like, oh, this guy's. And again, I, I know I sound blamey on the girls that walked home with her. And I'm not, I'm not meaning to be that no. harsh. The situation, I understand, could be intimidating for anybody who was in it. And you'd never think. The worst. Never. You never think the worst. But I just. But I think the worst now, when you're in your third, like now I'm just, I like close a situation immediately. Oh, same. But in college, it was much, yeah, it was scary to have, I don't know, I don't want to say balls because I want to say something womanly. (laughs) Lady balls. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Over it. Only we had that sponsorship. (laughs) Paul's family living situation was rather unique. I'm not here to judge as it seemed to work for them. And if it works for you, then that's fine. But it's not what one might call ordinary by 1996 standards. While at college, Paul lived in a Cal Poly dorm, which was just a short walk from Kristen's. As we mentioned, it's about 40 yards away. You could see them from each location. His mother and father lived in separate homes in the neighboring town of Arroyo Grande. It's about 15 minutes away in California. And they had for some time lived in different houses. 
but they remained married. Hmm. And they still were like, this is my husband, this is my wife, they do stuff together. They just lived in different houses, and his mother had a boyfriend. Okay. That sounds like the life. I, yes, they were just making it work. She was <laughs> yeah. like, I have everything. Her house was like beautiful and immaculate. His was kind of tumble down. Right. So there you have it. Okay. Paul's father, Reuben, lived at 710 White Court, and Susan and uh, Paul's mother and her boyfriend lived just a short distance away at 529 Branch Street. Susan would go on to rent out the house on Branch Street, but it's important to note that at the time of Kristen's disappearance, she herself and her boyfriend were living there full time. Okay. Okay, so back to Cal Poly. On Friday night, this is the night of Kristen's disappearance, I mentioned that her roommate was away. Like she had gone away just for the night to stay with a different friend. But what I haven't told you yet was Paul's roommate was also gone. Okay. There is no one who can account for what did or did not happen in either dorm room that night, Mm. which is kind of awful. No one can say that Kristen arrived home or didn't. No one can say that Paul arrived home or didn't or that he was alone. There's just nobody there. So the next day, which would make it Saturday morning, Kristen's roommate, Crystal, arrives back at their dorm room, and she finds that Kristen's not there. But her things are all, like, spread out over her bed in a manner in which, like, it's pretty clear that no one slept there the night before. Like, Mm -hmm. if you're getting ready and you throw everything on your bed, that's what it looks like. And Crystal also notices that Kristen's, like, wallet with her money in it and her ID were among all the things on the bed. And so she assumes, well, it looks like Kristen didn't sleep here. But that wasn't a reason for her to be alarmed because Kristen had sleepovers with friends occasionally. She slept in Margarita's room a lot, her friend next door. So Crystal just thought like, eh, maybe she didn't want to be by herself for the night. So it's not a big deal. I'll see her when she gets back. As it turns out, Margarita had also expected Kristen to arrive back to her room that night as they had planned to stay in her room together. They had planned a sleepover. And she thought, well, she's going to come back, sleep in my room, and then give me back my key. Right. Because she also still has her key. But this never happened. By Saturday night, when Kristen still hadn't come back to the dorm, Crystal and Margarita both began to worry. They both started asking around to see if anyone had seen Kristen. And as it turned out, no one had since Friday night. Then Sunday came and went. And the smarts did not get their usual Sunday phone call from Kristen. And, of course, they were expecting one, especially this week, because, as I said, she had left them that message that was like, I have good news. I can't wait to talk to you on Sunday. Okay. And no call came. But, of course, they didn't have any idea that something unusual or sinister was going on. It was just a little curious. By Monday, when there still had been absolutely no trace of Kristen or word from her, Margarita— Crystal, her roommate, and a few other girls from Weir Hall gathered together to discuss the situation. So they then decide to call the San Luis Obispo police, who then direct them to the Cal Poly campus police. And a lot of times when we end up talking to campus police, we get problems. Right. Campus police tell the girls after they hear their story, they're like, okay, Kristen's been gone since Friday night. She went to a party. We don't know where she was. It's Monday. There is school tomorrow. Where is she? Help us find her. And they say, you know what, you guys? She probably went on an unexpected vacation with people she met at this party on Friday night. What? Which is an absurd assessment, right? That doesn't happen. It doesn't. And there's zero basis in fact or reality to say this. Nothing. They have no reasons or leads to be like, she went with unknown people away. Like, what is she, Alexis Rose? (laughs) (laughs) She was kidnapped in somebody's castle. It was fine. (laughs) 
you're so right. But like, why would you assume that that was the story? The campus cop made that up about a girl he didn't know that was a potentially in extreme danger and then just walked away and lived with himself fine. Right. Well, that's just how women are. You know, they just walk away. Yeah. And who cares if they're gone? Whatever. Mm. There's a lot more of them. Never will I ever see how this was an acceptable response to this situation, but it was. So then, by Monday night, because this was like early Monday, probably morning slash early afternoon, by Monday night, they're like, we got to call the cops again. She's not here. Like, we're going to wake up tomorrow morning. There's going to be school. It's been a three-day weekend. Like, we got to do something. What sucks is that these girls probably wanted to call on Saturday. They probably felt like they wanted to. Probably. Yeah. I mean, like, the first day they were just asking everybody, like, have you seen Kristen? Where is she? They were like, we're going to find her. But they were, like, concerned enough. Yeah, for sure. But them not just calling. Like, today we would just call the cops. Oh, immediately. But it's because of stories like this Mm -hmm. one that we know that we have to just call the cops. Yeah, and they probably were a little concerned that she was going to be mad at them initially. Right. I bet if they got authorities involved and she was, in fact, just at somebody else's house, they were worried she would, like— not react well to that situation. Yeah. So there's like a little like holdover period where mm-hmm. you're, you don't want to make your friend mad. But that goes away when you're terrified eventually. Just stop feeling bad, feeling guilty Yeah, about don't something. feel bad for creepy guy. Don't yeah. feel bad for your friend that might be lost and might not be. It's always better to check. Yeah. Just do, Just the- do what feels right. Exactly. <laughs> Err on the side of caution every single time. That's all. So... They call the police for the second time, and this time the campus police go, okay, we're going to call her parents. And they're like, all right, call her parents. So they call the smarts, and they say they had not heard from from Kristen and had expected to. So their parents are kind of like, what's going on? Now the campus police tell the smarts, oh, don't worry, don't worry. She probably just has gone camping with some friends. She'll turn up for school in the morning. And because of this insane made-up story that this cop just decided was what happened, a missing persons report was not filed for Kristen with the San Luis Obispo police until May 28th, which is the Tuesday. Now, she disappeared the night of the 24th. No missing persons report until the 28th. Wow. And people knew they couldn't find her. Right. And the girls had stressed to the campus police that this they thought this was an emergency and that they believed she was in trouble. And the campus police completely ignored them. And what tortures these girls to this day is that they think, like, well, there was probably evidence then. Mm-hmm. And with time, evidence can be wiped away. And yep. they gave this guy that time. Yeah. Unbelievable. So for several more days, reports trickle around the local news that Kristen ran off with some friends. Or, like, local girl, you know, leaves on, you know, is, is reported missing. She left with friends. Or, or they think she went back to Hawaii. Also, no reports, no reason to believe that. Or the the third theory the cops had was that she got so drunk that she just walked off into the night. I hate it. Never to be seen again, and that's fine. That's not fine. That doesn't just happen. It doesn't. At all. Yeah, instead of going back to her dorm, she just walked away. And then, after this buzz began to circulate around Cal Poly's campus, that something more sinister might have happened. So students start talking. San Luis Obispo police begin to investigate the situation more seriously and interview Paul Flores, Tim Davis, and Cheryl Anderson on May 30th. Now, I'm sorry, I have San Luis Obispo police, but this is still campus police. Sorry. They have involved 
the county police, but the campus cops are still, like, trying to handle it. Okay. Because at this time in 1996, it is— Anybody's guess whose jurisdiction these kind of crimes are? Mm-hmm. There has subsequently been a law passed, which we will talk about in a little bit. But, like, at this point, it was just hot potato. They're like, it's yours. No, it's yours. No, it's yours. Which also lets things just go completely unnoticed and unreported. Right. Now, this, of course, like, interviewing the three of them, casts their eyes on Paul, who is a failing student with a history of harassing women and the last known person to be seen with Kristen. Right. So, great. So, they found the guy. We can go. Take him in. We're done. Right? Yeah. That's what it seems like to me, too. So when campus police interview Paul, they notice that he has a black eye and his arms are covered in scratches. Right. But when they ask him how he got these injuries, he responds that he got them in a basketball game. However, in later interviews with Paul's friends, which he only has two, and they interview both of them, they say to the campus police that Paul told them he woke up with these injuries and didn't know how he got them. Mm. Because a black eye is something you don't remember getting. Right. Or clear, I mean, he was clearly playing a basketball game with cats. So, like, why <laughs> wouldn't you tell that story? Yeah, it's a great story. Whatever. So, campus police just go, oh, I guess it doesn't matter. And they don't document any of his injuries. What is wrong with them? They still went to cop school. Yeah. I don't know. Now, all of these, like, the black eye and the scratches could have been a fact that was totally lost to time. If... Paul had not been arrested for driving under the influence the night after Kristen had disappeared and therefore had a mugshot taken that prominently features the black eye. Well, that's what I was going to say just now, thinking that it was so many days later that some of that's going to go down. But if they saw him the day after? Well, later, San Luis Obispo police will see this and they will question him about it because of this mugshot. Okay. But if the mugshot hadn't been taken, that would have just gone into the ether. That's wild. Isn't that wild? That's crazy. A whole basketball game with cats just lost. Just lost, and no one would have known. It's such a good story. Damn it. In subsequent interviews with the San Luis Obispo police, Paul tells them that basketball story, and then he says, wait, wait, no, 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 no. That was a lie. I didn't want you guys to think I was clumsy, but I was um, taking the stereo out of my car, and I smacked my face on the steering wheel while trying to remove the stereo. Mm, no. The force that would have been needed to create, like, subdural bleeding of that kind, you can't yeah. do just by bending over. He had, like, a big old black eye. Right. Unless he was like, gotta get that stereo out. Rah! And headbutted the steering <laughs> wheel. It does sound like an injury I would get. I mean, you <laughs> 120% would get. Yeah. Would get that injury. <laughs> I would, like, slip and then, like, really wham yep. it. Mm-hmm. Or you and if you like, had been drinking, blood would have been thin. Yeah, easier. your blood yeah. would have been thinner. You have a big old bruise. Yeah. But the cops are like, that's not what happened to you. And you lied to us. Right. So, so the fact that he lied then becomes like a really useful tool for the police because okay. they can hold him for more things because he lied. They don't have proof of anything else. So now Scary Paul, a.k.a. Chester the Molester, has lied to the police, has a history of harassing women, and was the last person to see Kristen. Now, I have to repeat this a lot of times because it's just so hard to believe that all of these things are there about Mm -hmm. this guy, and he still is just, like, walking around in life. And he's the last person to see Kristen in a state where she couldn't even stand without assistance. So it's time to investigate this guy, right? Right. Kind of. Yeah. Only kind of. Not 100%. At this point, campus police have, now they turn over the investigation to the San Luis Obispo Sheriff's Office, 
who then launch a full-scale investigation. Then, being on June 28th! Wait, we were just in May. Yep. This process, this campus police runaround, went on for a month before they just turned the reins all over to the act, like this, the county police. Yeah, the parents must be yeah. horrified. Oh, yeah. And this is when they actually start sending out search parties for Kristen. A month later. Wow. Now, let's remember back a couple episodes ago to when we covered Delphi. When did that search party go out? Like two hours. hours. Yeah. <laughs> like not even like 15 minutes after they didn't report for where they were supposed to be picked up, one person was searching for them. 45 minutes, three people were searching for them. Within two hours, the entire town was searching for them. This is a month. <laughs> oh, I'm I'm so mad. You told me I was going to be angry. I did. <laughs> I <laughs> warned you. so angry. It's terrible. So again, now they send out search parties. There's people on horseback. There's helicopters. A lot of resources are being used to try and find her. And by, you know, like the, the end of June, police have officially listed Paul as a person of interest. And they call to have cadaver-sniffing dogs brought into his dorm room. Which, I have to add, by this time, the end of June, he had been allowed to completely move out of, taking all of his things, and the college's janitorial staff had come in and thoroughly cleaned the room. Right, because it was like a, the end of the Turnover. year. Mm-hmm. So, and yeah. they let that happen. I can't. Hmm? Yeah. But the dogs will find something still. Yes, ma'am, they will. Which is great. These dogs are trained to operate in this kind of circumstance. Three separate dogs hit, or like alert, at the corner of Paul's mattress and at his trash can. Okay. Three separate dogs brought in by three separate people with no knowledge of the other one finding this. Great. They also take his trash can out and they line it up with ten other trash cans and they have the dogs identify the trash can and they find it every time. Okay. Paul's defense initially points out the fact that the dogs were probably just detecting the smell of garbage. Let me explain what cadaver dogs look for. Pro tip, it's not trash. Cadaver dogs are trained to detect the specific combination of gases that are let off by the decaying process of only a human body. Mm -hmm. They're like a unique byproduct of human decomposition. And they are trained from the time that they are little tiny puppies Mm -hmm. to be able to smell this particular gas. And they can find it on something as small as like a fraction of a drop of blood or a bone fragment. They can also detect it in its faintest forms in up to 30 meters of water. Wow. Yeah. So cadaver dogs, they're going to find it. Yeah, they're no joke. Mm -hmm. They're no basketball kittens. Scratching people. (laughs) (laughs) Causing problems, goddamn basketball cats. These dogs would not have been confused by the small dorm room waste basket that someone kept and had been emptied and cleaned. Right. But, um, that doesn't go anywhere. Are you kidding? I'm not. (gasps) Nope. This time, Paul is living with his father, Reuben, and police come to search Reuben's house. But it's only a cursory search that is performed. They don't look for a body, actually. They're only there saying they're looking for anything that could have belonged to Kristen. So they just look around surface-wise in the house, and they don't see, like, a girl's jacket or something like that. And then, so they leave. Okay. Mm-hmm. Meanwhile, Susan Flores, Paul's mom, has put her house up for rent. Hmm. Police claim, curious. yeah, very curious, that they don't have enough evidence to arrest Paul 
and continue to sort of investigate. For the rest of this story, Reuben and Susan are spoken of as a unit. They always talk about them like going places together or seeing them together. or like They talk about them like a normal married couple. So while I do not have confirmation of this, and there are like literally no sites that confirm it, news articles, nothing, I think that they probably moved back in together. Okay. Because they are spoken of as like being together all the time. I could be wrong. If I am, you guys can feel free to tell me or not tell me, whatever. But this is what I am assuming. This is my mm-hmm. assumption based on the information I've read. Ruben, Susan, call in. Let us know. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> call in. Because <laughs> we have a hotline yeah. now. It's great. <laughs> so in one of his last interviews with the police, Paul also tells them that he has to leave. He's like, can I go? I have to go to my mom's house and clean up some concrete which should have rung a lot of alarm bells because concrete sure is a good way to hide a body, but it didn't. Paul went on his way, and the Flores family all stuck by the same story. They said the night of the disappearance, Paul went one way, Kristen went the other way, and that was the end of it. If someone took her after that happened, well, it wasn't on Paul. (sighs) Yep. Meanwhile, Susan Flores is having a hard time renting out her house. So in September of 1996, she relists it with the rent significantly lower, and renters almost immediately appear in the form of a couple named Mary and Joe Lassiter and their young son. The Lassiters love this house. It was immaculately clean, well taken care of, and in a beautiful neighborhood with a good school district close to their mother, and they all worked at the same hospital together, so it fit like every single need they had, and they were ecstatic. Great. They also liked the all-concrete backyard. All concrete backyard. All concrete, because it was maintenance-free, which is clutch for them, because when you're a hospital employee, work long hours, you don't have time to be mowing a lawn. Right. They like that. However, things were kind of off from the very second they moved in. First, Ruben Flores, again, I think they lived together because of this, had told them that they had access to everything in the house except for a metal trash can on the edge of the property. That wasn't the same as the other, like, you know how we have trash cans that obviously belong to, like, the city and you get yeah. all the same ones? It wasn't one of those. Okay. It was just, like, a big old-school metal trash can. Right. He was like, don't touch that. I'm going to come pick it up in a couple days, but don't touch it. So they didn't. <laughs> I know. Because, oh. So at the end of the week, he shows up with his car and takes it off the property. Never to be seen again. Second, the all-concrete yard also featured a brand-new poured concrete planter box that was placed over what used to be a small grassy area next to the driveway. And this so-called planter box is about six feet in length and didn't contain any soil, so it was basically just a poured concrete trench, which if you know anything about plants, you would know that this leaves no room for drainage in the soil and it would rot the roots of anything you planted there. Right. You can't plant plants in just like a concrete bucket. No. Not like nice landscaping things in a big trench. The Lassiter just did go on to like work with what they had there. You can see there's like mulch and pots and stuff and they made it pretty. But you certainly couldn't use this box in the way it had been advertised. Okay. Third, the Lassiters began getting hate mail postmarked from Stockton, California, where Kristen was from, almost immediately as soon as they moved in. And the postcards and letters were asking them to turn in their son and tell authorities what happened to Kristen. But their son was a tiny child, so they assumed it did not apply to them. Oh, oh, yeah. They have a little boy, but they're like, no! (laughs) This isn't about us. Yeah. (laughs) 
So they, they quickly figure out these letters are not meant for them. But they're nonetheless unsettled by their presence. Of course. And they keep them all in a file. Every time the Watcher. They, seriously, <laughs> like the Watcher. And they and she was smart. She, like, kept them all. She was like, all right, I'm just going to file them away in case I ever need to produce these for authorities because they're pretty scary. Fourth, shortly after the last sitters moved in, Mary one day, like, pulled her car through the gate. I mean, everything's concrete. In the driveway to wash it. Okay. And when she was finished washing the car, she was, like, rinsing the suds off the driveway when she noticed something glinting off the sun in the, in the crack in the driveway. So she walks over to pick it up and notices that it's an earring, which looks like a small silver teardrop with a turquoise dot in the center. So she turns it over to the back in her hand, and she notices that the back of this earring is smudged with a dried, rust-colored substance, which is, it obviously looks bloody. Right. So she immediately brings this earring into the house and puts it in a plastic bag for safekeeping and then puts it in the file with all the hate mail and tells her husband about it. Like, she's on it. This woman is on it. Yeah. Later that week, police come by to interview Joe Lassiter because he's living in this house. So they're like, well, we should get a statement from this guy too and see if anything weird happened. And he told them about the earring and they immediately ask for it. They're like, well, you got to give us that. And he was like, oh, yeah, okay, it's bags. Here you go. The Lassiters also later had to go in for a deposition to the police to, like, make a formal statement, at which point they ended up meeting the smarts. And it was very awkward, Mary Lassiter said, because she was like, I feel like they think I know something, and I don't know something, and I feel so bad for them, and I, like, just, I want justice for them and their daughter. Mm -hmm. And in the process of them giving their deposition and the smarts being there, they find out about this hearing. And it turns out they've never heard about it before. Oh. No one told the smarts that she found this hearing. The police said they did a visual check of the earring and immediately discounted it, claiming that it looked like a child's earring and couldn't have belonged to Kristen. How do you know that? How do you know that? Yet again, there's no possible way that they could have educatedly made this connection. And they didn't show the earring to her parents. They didn't show it to her friends. They didn't look in any photographs to see if they saw her wearing them. They did absolutely nothing. The earring was just discounted and then lost. Oh, my God. The smarts petitioned the courts to let him see it after they found out about it, of course, but they couldn't because somehow the earring had miraculously disappeared from evidence. One last thing about this earring before we move on, because as much as that would have been an excellent piece of evidence to have, it's gone now, and there's absolutely nothing we can do about that. After all the weirdness with the earring, the Lassiters having to hand it over, the smarts never getting to see it, the police dismissing it on sight, Mary Lassiter was driving down the road when she passed Kristen's infamous billboard. So a few friends of the smarts had put these billboards up, and they have Kristen's senior photograph, the award money, and, um, like, tip line, and, like, any information leading to her discovery, call these people. So when Mary saw this, she stopped dead in her tracks. Because the necklace Kristen was wearing in her senior portrait features three silver charms, one of which was the exact same charm that was on the earring found in her driveway. <sighs> Mary is certain that this earring had been part of a set. Yeah. And had belonged to Kristen. Yeah. Yes, of course. Oh, my God. I know. It's so terrible. So, finally, there's one more bizarre thing. Something that... Even the police didn't know about until Your Own Backyard was released. Starting on the night they moved in, Mary was awakened every single morning at 4.20 a.m. by a watch alarm. They're like, beep, 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 beep of a watch. At first, she thought it was teens setting, like, their watch to 4.20 so they could sneak out together and smoke pot. 
or just like a neighbor with a juvenile sense of humor. But the alarm was relentless, and it never stopped. It went off every single morning at 4.20, and it was close by. So Mary began to, like, want to figure out where this was coming from, and so she investigated. She could hear the alarm, but there was no person in sight, and it was definitely coming from her property. It seemed to be underground below her bedroom window. Mary even tried to, like, dig into the ground until she hit concrete. She fed sticks down into the dirt so she could see if she could poke around to find it or something. But again, all she ever hit was a concrete barrier. After a couple months, it stopped, and Mary assumed that the watch battery had simply died. Now think back. What time did Kristen have to get up to go to work? 420? 4.30. 4.30. Her mom said. But... It isn't uncommon to set an alarm with a snooze built in. Of course. I always do. Usually so do by I. 12. Mm-hmm. 12 of them. <laughs> Mary thinks that Kristen's body was buried on that property for a time. Whether or not it is still there remains to be seen, but Mary thinks that while she lived there, the body was just a few feet away from where she slept. Wow. That it was Kristen's watch going off every morning. Which gives me, like, goosebumps everywhere. <sighs> So after the Lassiters give their deposition to the police, and they also, the Lassiters are like gold star citizens because after they kind of figured out what was going on, Mary Lassiter talked to the police and was like, what can I let you do that is legal? This isn't my property, but I am renting it. So anything that you can do with my consent under the law, you are allowed to do. Mm -hmm. So the reason police were in there at all was simply because of Mary Lassiter. But after they give their deposition, the Flores immediately evict them. Right, of course. And I believe Susan moved back into this house. So now I think they, they live in the two houses because, well, you would want, you would want control over those houses, wouldn't you? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Despite being completely despised by their community, the Floreses continue to live there and have held on to both of their properties. Soon after the Lassiters moved out, a large concrete garage was added over the patio on the Branch Street property. And they love a concrete. They fucking love concrete. In 1997, the Smarts filed a $40 million wrongful death lawsuit against Paul Flores, which resulted in him being deposed yet again by the police. But this time, he refused to answer a single question under the guidance of his lawyer. He cited the Fifth Amendment every single time. Ask him like 40 questions. He pleads the Fifth every time. I hate it. Yep. It was a frustrating waste of time and an insult to everyone involved. And if you want my opinion, things were just going nowhere fast at that point. And his lawyer was a real dick about it. The judge was like, are you, in the, in the interest of time, are you going to keep doing this? And his lawyer was like, you can give a speech all you want. This is not time for speeches. You do that later on your own time. He was like a real dick. He was like, ask the questions. Just ask them so we can answer them the same way every time. Right. It was nuts. Ugh. Yeah. After a while, the investigation, which is technically still alive, starts to go stagnant. And it, and it does this for a good long time. But in 1998, a little tiny bit of good came out of this whole horrible ordeal. The Kristen Smart Campus Safety Act came into effect, and this requires community colleges and universities to have in place written agreements with local law enforcement outlining the operational responsibility for Part 1 violent crimes occurring on each institution's campuses. Local law enforcement agencies must enter into written agreements with campus law enforcement agencies if there are college or university campuses located in their jurisdiction of the local law enforcement agencies. The written agreement must designate which law enforcement agency shall have the operational responsibility for the investigation of each suspected part one violent crime 
and delineate the specific geographical boundaries of each agency's operational responsibility, including maps as necessary. Now, part one, violent crimes as labeled are defined as willful homicide, forcible rape, robbery, and aggravated assault. Notwithstanding, campus campus law enforcement maintain primary authority for providing police or security services, including the investigation of criminal activity to their campuses. These written agreements must be in place and available for public viewing. Now, what this would do would hopefully prevent other students from falling through the cracks the way Kristen had. Mm -hmm. Because now there are a system of written checks and balances between the local police and campus police, which requires everybody see everything. Right. I hope that helps. I don't know that it will. Right. But it is a necessary step. Mm -hmm. In 2002, so like nothing happens for a long time. We're just, nothing's going on. Authorities, while not making any more headway in the case, do declare Kristen legally dead, which I think was better for her family. Yeah, that, I mean, that's normally for the family. At least they can make peace and concentrate on grieving and finding justice. And also at this point, the cops are saying they're looking for a murder. So um, real quick, because I didn't listen to that podcast. Yeah, yeah. So the, the watch thing, mm-hmm. I know that was a big thing from the podcast. So was that yeah. something that was ever stated to the police? I, here, here's where things go very foggy. The police will not tell you any of their evidence. But Chris Lambert got this directly from Mary Lassiter. As far as I know, it is not in any police reports that are in are available publicly. And a lot of people speculate that the police heard it for the first time through Chris, Lass- um, Chris okay. Lambert's podcast. So they think that that is part of one of the missing pieces. So it was just a, a piece together from what the mom said about when she would wake up and then her mentioning the watch. Mm-hmm. Okay. She told him that, but she didn't necessarily tell that to the police because I don't know that they would have asked about it in a deposition. Right. So. And she wouldn't I, have any reason to think that, because she no, doesn't really know I Kristen, think it her, so she wouldn't have known. No, she wouldn't have. I think it took her a while to piece that together in yeah. her own head too. Mm-hmm. Um, be like, this weird thing happened. And then, oh. Oh, no. You know? But again, I cannot really confirm that because the police are extremely tight with their evidence. So I don't know. So, okay, we're at the point where Kristen is declared legally dead. At least the family can concentrate on grieving. And then things go dark for like a really good long time. The case does not go cold. They never list it as a cold case. The investigation is open and quote unquote active, but nothing really happens until September 6, 2016. So this is a long time. Officials from the San Luis Obispo County Sheriff's Office announced that they were investigating a new lead in the case at this point. Cadaver dogs from the FBI were brought in, and investigators were preparing to spend approximately four days excavating an area on the Cal Poly campus. After three days, items were found in all three dig sites located on the same hillside near Kristen's dorm. A spokesman for the sheriff's office said, quote, the items are being analyzed to see whether they are connected to the case, which could take days, weeks, or months. The items uncovered are still being investigated, and this is like still now they're being investigated. Oh, wow. And Paul Flores, at this point in time, is confirmed to be their prime suspect. Okay. This is good. Yeah. Not put Paul in jail good yet, but don't worry, that's coming. Because then in 2019, your own backyard comes onto the scene. 
and drums up a lot of attention onto this case. As it turns out, Chris Lambert talked to a great many people that had slipped through the records of the police officers. And with this discovery, detectives interview a new witness, one who they hadn't spoken to in the past, or if they had, they didn't document an important bit of information. Again, no one will tell us exactly what this was. I'll speculate for you in a minute, but this is what we have right now. And this is enough evidence, though, to have an order put in to monitor Paul's phone. Okay. Beginning in November of 2019. And within just three months, by February of 2020, detectives have gathered enough information from Paul's phone to gain a search warrant for all of the Flores' homes. And this is Paul, his father Ruben, his mother Susan, and even his sister Ermelinda. What did they take? We don't really know for sure. And they're not saying. But according to any videos or photos you see of this happening, because they are out there in the news, and what the Flores have said, because they weren't super quiet, was that they took a lot of electronics. Because when a case your family has been heavily implicated in is suddenly thrust into the national spotlight, it's a pretty safe bet that you're going to start talking to each other about it. Right. And apparently, talk they did. Ah. Mm-hmm. In the form of emails and text messages that okay. the cops now have. And this was before people knew that, like, you can get all the text messages and... Uh, it was 2020, so not necessarily, but oh, I don't 2020. Think, oh, it I was don't those think everybody phones. knows that now, to be quite honest with you. Right. I think there are plenty of people Sorry, that don't. I thought that they, like, found their stuff from before, too. They but got his phone records going all the way back, but that was just, like, phone calls and stuff. Right, the but text that's what I mean, like, are, nobody, oh, okay, but those are recent. What they found, him, found of him that was incriminating that I can piece together through the district attorney's press conference was... Like, they started talking about it again recently, and they said incriminating things to one another, and then cops have all of it. You got to meet in dark alleys, people. I know. Seriously. (laughs) Speak in code. Use a flashlight. Authorities also took over 100 other items from the houses, and after combing through them for nearly an additional year, they were able to have enough evidence against Paul and Ruben Flores to execute another search warrant for Ruben Flores' home, but this time... It was for investigators to bring in cadaver dogs and ground-penetrating radar to search the whole property in Arroyo Grande. And when they did, now this is just Ruben's house, when they did this, they found evidence that a body had in fact been buried there under Ruben's deck from what I've heard, and biological evidence would prove shortly afterwards that that body had been that of Kristen Smart. Wow. So while her body isn't there now and wasn't there when they found it, it was for a time. Okay. And when they came under suspicion, they moved. Right. Paul Flores was taken into custody at his home in the San Pedro section of Los Angeles on April 13th, 2021. It just happened. We all talked about it. And was charged with capital murder. Ruben Flores, who's 80 years old now, was arrested at his home on the same day and charged with being an accessory after the fact. On April 19th, Father and son each pleaded not guilty, according to the Associated Press. Now, in the press conference on April 22nd, San Luis Obispo District Attorney Dan Dow told the press about Reuben and Paul's charges. In questions, so like, of course, he took a bunch of questions. He said that he answered them and said that there was, in fact, evidence that Kristen's body had been under Reuben's deck, but it had since been moved to another location, one that they were pretty certain they knew of. They said they think they know where they're going to be able to find her, but it's just a matter of like, if 
finding the actual body. And I've read in a few locations that there is a distinct possibility that it's in parts. Yeah. So uh, District Attorney Dan Dow assured them that they were working tirelessly to uncover Kristen's body. He also said that he believed Paul's old dorm room should be considered a crime scene. Mm-hmm. He also stated that he believes Kristen to be Paul, not not the only victim of Paul, and that they are actively looking for other women whose injury or disappearance Paul Flores may have been directly involved in. They say they have evidence from, I guess, from other women that he has sexually assaulted them in the past. So they do have some evidence. They're looking for more and bigger. Dan Dow also said they did attain electronic communications that had been used to gain the warrant for Paul and Ruben's arrest. So they admitted to something at some point in time. That's for sure. From statements given, we can reasonably assume that authorities believe Paul took Kristen back to his dorm room that night. And in an act of attempted violent rape, he killed her. Then authorities believe one of two things happened. He either brought her out to this location where they brought cadaver dogs in 2016 and buried her for a time mm-hmm. or immediately called his father. But either, well, either way, he immediately called his father and we'll get to why later. Okay. But he might have temporarily stored her there. We don't know. We don't know what this 2016 site is yet. But they do think he was, she was killed in his dorm room and then Reuben came with him and picked up her body, helped him with cleanup and disposed of it. Unfortunately, because of the statute of limitations on rape charges for Paul Flores, you can't charge him with rape. They've expired. But because authorities believe that the murder was committed in an act of rape, they were able to charge him with first-degree felony murder. Sorry, it wasn't capital murder. It's felony murder. They're very much similar. Yeah. Reuben, unfortunately, has been bailed out by his wife, Susan, and is currently no longer in custody. At first, he didn't have any bail, but then they petitioned to get his bail. Or no, he had like a really high bail. And mm-hmm. they petitioned to get his bail lowered and won. Mm. Which is dangerous, as it can be assumed that he would go through great lengths to return to Kristen's body and further dispose of it. Oh. Paul, I was going to say, I was like, he's like 80, just like whatever. But if he knows where the stuff is. Yeah, that's true. But isn't I feel like they're monitoring him. Uh, well, I mean, they can't say that they are, but I, I'm yeah. sure that they are. Paul is being held without bail. Authorities say that, like I said, they have evidence of him committing other sexual crimes against women. So no matter what, they can hold him. Okay. And both Paul and Ruben, as I mentioned, have pled formally at this point not guilty. So lastly, who did they find? Who is this witness? What tiny piece of information finally busted this case wide open? Well, of course, the police are not saying. But in the last episode of Your Own Backyard, Chris Lambert mentions uncovering a statement— the given by an Australian exchange student who attended Cal Poly when Kristen went missing. Now, this statement is documented in, like, a huge file of police reports that were just lost in sauce and a notebook that Kristen's parents kept because they, like, documented every single thing they found. Okay. But again, these are notebooks and notebooks and notebooks of just lists of things. Mm-hmm. And going through it was a monumental task. And Chris Lambert was like, well, I'll do it. He's a fucking saint. Right. He deserves 10 medals. So they both they find this mention of just like Australian man. Okay. And he gave a statement that confirms something that, that says the statement says that he saw a man and a woman matching Paul and Christian's description in the lobby of a dorm room struggling. So like she was fighting him. Okay. This would be after everyone else saw them. This would actually be the last time someone saw Kristen alive. This is very important and it was completely discounted and lost. Right. 
So it was, I guess, probably in, so if, if that's what happened, it was probably in his dorm room or his dorm hall well, or lobby, right? Well, wait. The man reported that he saw the struggle happening in the lobby of Cheryl's dorm. Oh. But that doesn't mean anything because he could have went to one place and then went to another place and we just don't really know. Mm -hmm. But here's the thing. When the police took this Australian man's report, they wrote down the complete wrong location of this encounter that they saw. So they're like, well, it couldn't have been them. This is on the other side of campus. He saw some other people fighting. But when Chris Lambert found him because he hunted him down and found this guy and Mm -hmm. spoke to him and sent him pictures of campus, this man confirms that it wasn't far away. It was right in the last place where Kristen and Paul had been seen and was almost definitely the two of them. Right. So now he uncovers this in his podcast. I would think that the police were like, oh, shit. Mm-hmm. We had it wrong the last time she was seen alive. We we now have grounds to, like, relaunch this. If you pressed me, I would think that this was information that started the dominoes falling. But there are also several sources, including ABC News, that report that the bits of information revealed in the podcast that got the police back on track were when a former colleague of Paul Flores's mother, Susan, told Chris Lambert that Mrs. Flores had come to work after Memorial Day weekend 1996, when Kristen met, went missing, saying that she hadn't slept well because her husband had gotten a phone call in the middle of the night and left in his car, mm. which would add up. But to me, it raises questions because was she living in the same house as him? She wasn't at that time. Were they having a sleepover? Where was her boyfriend? Is she talking about her boyfriend? Did he get involved too? What is that? Or it sounds like if they were still married, she's probably, she could have just been involved the whole time. So I know this is where we were getting hung up a bit. So even if she was in her house with her boyfriend, the dad could have called her for whatever yeah. reason. So she might have been aware of what Well, had what been. this also, woman is this saying is that, like, she, like, heard the phone ring and was disturbed by him getting up. Yeah, but she could have also just been saying something of, like, oh, I just didn't sleep well because my husband— And they could have— they But it could have been, been having a sleepover. I don't know. They were still married. Yeah. They could have been—it could have been in a different way that she could have said it, but still the fact yeah. of, like, that she was well aware of what was going on that weekend right. and could have just been, like— Oh, like, I was just, just worried, and I was up all night. So a lot of people think that that statement, and and it easily could be because that puts Ruben leaving the house in the middle of the night. Yes, yeah. Also very important. Mm-hmm. Then there's the watch alarm, mm-hmm. which is, like, really the most chilling bit of unsolved evidence, if you ask me. Many people claim that authorities were unaware of this piece of evidence, as I mentioned before, which is interesting, but probably would have led them to Susan's house and not Ruben's, where they are currently pursuing an investigation. Though there has been ground-penetrating radar pulsed through the floor of that big new concrete garage, but the evidence gathered was highly inconclusive. See, I would think that Kristen was first brought to Susan's I house. Would too. And then I think that when they moved the trash can is when it went to Ruben's house. I, I, do t- I don't disagree with you. I think that it was first to Susan's house. And he was probably having that sleepover. Maybe. <laughs> and I think they, they might have put her in the ground first. Then took her out and poured the concrete over where yeah. she was. Then there were bits. And it could have even, that trash can could have even just been her stuff. It could have just been, yeah, exactly. We don't know. It could have been like her shoes and her whatever. Mm-hmm. Like you don't know what was on her at the time or what came off her or what they needed mm-hmm. to put in a trash can. And then they put her under his deck for a long ass time. And then when people started sniffing around again, they moved her somewhere else. Yep. But that's where we are right now. Okay. 
Now, there's a large petition and amount of people that want to have the concrete in Susan's backyard dug up. Of course. I do, too. Where's the watch? I want them to find that fucking watch. Yeah. Oh, that's that drives me. I mean, they have crazy. to get to that point. They, well, they will. Yeah. They will. Because now they're both charged with murder. Like, there's a murder trial happening now. It's not right. just speculative. Like, this is their guy. And they have evidence. We just don't know what it is. Yeah. Once the trial happens, we'll know a lot more. But, you know, right now, that's where we're at. Wow. So, this case is so infuriating. <laughs> yeah. It makes me so mad how, like, casual they were with a, with a girl being missing. And, like, come on. I just, I need missing women to be important. I need them to be important. And also, here's the thing. Even if people knew that she was a a world traveler, mm-hmm. the fact that she's an experienced traveler would deem that she would let people know where she was going. Right. Somebody would know. It would be planned. It wouldn't be, yeah. you know, she wasn't just super spontaneous no. about that. She had plans. Her she parents had call her a planner. Yeah. Also, a lot of time, energy, and speculation was given to her behavior at that party that night. They said she was being promiscuous. She was very drunk. She probably just wandered off with some guy. And Mm -hmm. that is how this was colored and is still colored by some people to this day. That she was irresponsible and promiscuous and just got in over her head. And that is not how you should ever look at a situation where a woman ended up dead. No. that's Nobody's asking for dead and raped. That's insane. And this is a college girl trying to figure out who the hell she was in a time where she admittedly was struggling with that. Mm-hmm. How dare you? How dare you yeah. say that that's why things happened to her? Campus police used those words. Mm-hmm. Oh, I'm so angry. I know. So am I. I couldn't tell. I know. Sometimes <laughs> I get heated. I probably am covered in hives. I can't handle oh, it. Oh, yeah. So that's it. Wow. And again, listen to your own backyard, you guys. I can't give that whole podcast enough credit. It's great. Normally, I, I just want you to listen to only us. Yeah. <laughs> us and only us all the time. But really, there's so much that I didn't even include in this because— I mean, it's like 10 hours worth of information. I I couldn't possibly. But it's all worth listening to. And it is fascinating. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. Uh, We can talk about it over on the Facebook board. If any of you guys have already listened and you want to get into it because, like, I'm all about talking about it now. Yep, yep. And Uh, now I know what's going on. And now you're clued in so we can all be clued in together. Hooray! (laughs) So, toast. Toast. Yeah. Uh, obviously to Kristen. Yes. And her poor family who just never gave up. Yeah. And the roommates that didn't give up. Yeah. So cheers to them. Um, let's cheers the basketball cats. No, they're bad. They were good. They beat them up. Oh, yeah, no, I guess you're right. Go basketball cats. (laughs) And we have a new patron. <gasps> Let's cheers to her. Dina. <laughs> yeah. yeah. She's a best fiend. Yes, Dina. So, Thank best you. Best fiend forever. We yeah. love you. Cheers. Cheers. Such clinkies today. I know. So many clinks. 
I know. I love a good clink. Who doesn't? (laughs) And if we just wanted to have a good time and trusted that in the end, we would always make it home safe, we would be dead. Thank you for listening to the We Would Be Dead podcast. Hit subscribe now to never miss an episode. Rate and review our show on iTunes. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Would Be Dead Pod. And join our Facebook group to discuss the podcast and more. He was clearly playing a basketball game with cats. So, like, why wouldn't you tell that story? Yeah, it's a great story. Go basketball cats!